I'm Alex Mozed. Happy Friday. Welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so in the past few days, uh, there's been some rumors that Instacart is evaluating a fundraise. Instacart uh, has been on fire. They, they finally hit profitability in April uh, due to this pandemic. They're basically, if you don't know what Instacart is, Instacart is a platform that allows you to Actually, I don't know how you wouldn't probably know what Instacart is today, but okay, fine. If you don't know what they are, um, you can buy groceries from other grocery stores and they'll handle the, the the picking of the items and the delivery of the items. And they had received money from Amazon many, many years ago. Um, Amazon, I think, owns roughly a 10% stake in Instacart. And then Amazon launched its own competitive version of Instacart. There's been a lot of kind of turmoil from a cap table uh, standpoint for for Instacart, uh, Instacart's big competitor shipped, which Target acquired a few years ago. In retrospect, pretty smart acquisition on on Target's part. Instacart now again wasn't even break even now because of the pandemic. It's rumored that they have hit profitability. They had raised money about eight hundred million dollars in twenty eighteen. They had a little bit below an eight billion dollar valuation. Now the rumor is that they're looking to fundraise between a valuation of 12 to $14 billion, maybe around $13 billion, uh, which would give them more, at least a, a 50% bump in valuation uh, just roughly two years later for this fundraise. Uh, we don't know um, how much they're looking to raise from this round, but they've raised roughly $2 billion to date. And so presumably this would be you know, a sizable raise uh, as they continue to expand. You know, I think the question is, what is Instacart going to use this money on uh, in the future? It's interesting. V1 of Instacart, if you remember back uh, maybe a year or two ago, you could order from, you could go to Costco.com, you could order groceries or supplies from Costco, but that website was essentially a white label Instacart page. You can't do that anymore. Now, if you want to order your groceries, you have to go to Instacart's centralized experience. So we're going to touch on this more later in today's episode about this idea of providing e-commerce capabilities to uh, retailers and distributors, like that Costco example. And then as the marketplace scales and gets more, uh, more leverage, basically more power like Instacart has, then they start to shut off those capabilities like we've seen in that Costco example. So you can't do that anymore. Now they want all the traffic to go through their marketplace channel the Instacart app. Now, I think where Instacart will move is to move beyond grocery. Grocery is kind of the the killer app or the killer product segment for Instacart to really prove its value prop. But now I think you're seeing retail in general just experience such difficulties that I think you're going to start to see them expand into other verticals, into other retailers that want to enable same day delivery, for example, that don't want, you know, where shoppers don't want to go into the store, for example. And now I think Instacart's going to be able to start to expand uh, beyond just grocery. And not only can they just double down in competing against shipped in competing against, you know, there's some smaller kind of B2C grocery enabling startups, uh, that are trying to work with, say, smaller like bodegas, for example, or or enabling restaurants to do, kind of do their own version of grocery pickup because you can't eat it in the restaurants anymore. So there is a lot of smaller startup innovation also. Maybe they buy one of those companies, but they're certainly going to double down in dominating the grocery and, the, and then I think move uh, horizontally into other verticals 
of retail. Um, so, you know, good job to Instacart for being able to, to, uh, to thrive in this environment. Another example of a non-tech monopoly thriving would be Walmart. This article here just came out yesterday. Walmart Marketplace is outperforming Amazon and eBay. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Walmart is doing more throughput, more GMV than Amazon. But what it is saying is that the growth is much, much greater. Not just a little bit, but much, much greater than Amazon and eBay. So let's look at a few of these stats. It's actually really interesting. So web traffic to Walmart increased by 55% in April compared to February. Uh, so this is April compared to February 2020. By comparison, eBay and Amazon saw 15% growth. Okay, so 55 versus 15% growth. Uh, Walmart's app has become the number one most downloaded app in the shopping category. And this is partially because, so what Walmart did in April is they had a Walmart grocery app. We spoke about this on the show a number of weeks ago, where, you know, as you are scaling new innovative services like Walmart grocery um, on-demand pickup, right, curbside pickup, you know, they needed to move a lot faster. So they had two separate apps, the Walmart, walmart.com traditional shopping experience, and then the Walmart grocery. And that allowed the grocery team to iterate, to fail fast, because they were working with new integrations, like I need to pick up and then and then pick up at the curb. And, and they need to iterate more quickly. It's much harder to make those changes if you now need to make changes to the overall walmart.com app. So Walmart grocery app, became mature enough and stable enough and solidified enough that they then merged the two apps together, which then is able to boost demand. Now everyone that wants to get groceries now is getting the walmart.com app and vice versa. So that obviously consolidates demand and boosted Walmart's app to be the number one most downloaded app in the shopping category on the app store. Now, here's what's interesting from sellers. This is the big thing that marketplace dynamic, how do you get third-party sellers? Uh, Amazon is doing probably over 60% of the sales on Amazon are from third-party sellers, not from products that Amazon is buying and then reselling, right? So here, these are some kind of seller examples. Our sales on Walmart in April were five times higher, five times higher than their normal average, right? Uh, we saw incredible growth on Walmart in March and more than 100% growth in April year on year. This is Channel Advisor. So... Channel Advisor basically provides tools to third-party sellers. So this isn't one seller. This is like the SaaS company that enables all the sellers. So what they're seeing is, right, this is 100% year-over-year growth in April across all of the sellers that Channel Advisor has as customers, which is a majority of the third-party sellers are using a product or a tool for Channel Advisor. They're helping you like price items, manage the different products that you're selling on the different marketplaces, process orders. So, hey, you know, this store just gave me this order. Let me print the shipping label and send the item out. They give you all those tools. So they have such a great cross-section across all these different third-party sellers. This is a really, really big deal quote uh, that they've got here. This company, Deliver, we've, we've been near Black Friday order volumes across daily across Walmart Marketplace, a 3x increase from normal. So this is very, very cool stuff. Um, and, you know, again, we've been very bullish on Walmart, on Walmart of their acquisition of Jet. On We've covered them so many times over the past few years on their journey to become that number two marketplace behind Amazon to show that traditional incumbents 
uh, by using M&A, by embracing new business models, by leveraging the, the intrinsic assets inside of the company like Walmart enabling grocery pickup. That's a linear offering. It's not a marketplace offering. But that grocery pickup helped to fuel their digital growth. And now we're seeing that move into the marketplace, right? So they, they're able to kind of bring the grocery demand, the digital grocery demand in line with their walmart.com app and marketplace. Now you're seeing third-party sellers get all that benefit from all of that demand, right? So it, it's a beautiful thing to see. Uh, you know, I, I hope the uh, Walmart team is is maybe taking a, 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 a little bit of a celebration. I'm sure they're all grinding really hard, but this is really wonderful to see to still show that these large tech monopolies uh, are, are not impenetrable. And by, especially in this case scenario, by embracing new business models, by having that startup, that jet.com, bringing the assets of Walmart together, that you can do this. It takes a few years. They bought jet.com in 2016, but you can do this. Uh, and it's working. So that's really, really wonderful to see. Um, so the next couple topics are, are, are kind of threading this needle into B2B. We've spoken a lot about Amazon and Amazon business, their, their marketplace and B2B distribution. And so how can, just like Walmart has embraced Jet.com, how can a traditional B2B distributor embrace a marketplace startup, right? What are those kinds of integrations? And so if you are a CEO of a large traditional B2B distributor and you say, okay, if I'm going to go invest or buy this marketplace startup, I know that long-term I need to embrace a marketplace business model strategically. That makes sense. I've seen what's happened in B2C with Amazon and the retailers. I'm seeing what Walmart is doing to successfully come back and be the number two behind Amazon. How do I prevent that that discrepancy from being so large in B2B? How do I embrace a marketplace business model as one of the leading incumbent B2B distributors? And the answer is you have to look at investing or buying one of the B2B marketplace startups. But in order to justify that investment or that acquisition, how do you show that that money is going to deliver immediate short-term impact that benefits the core business. And here are two examples. One is this idea of a buyout marketplace, different than what you see with B2C and in retail. But B2B distributors have hundreds, if not thousands of salespeople. And this concept of buyout is pretty universal across just about every vertical of B2B distribution. You can call it different things in, in different verticals. But the simple idea is this. I'm a salesperson. I get a phone call. Hey, Alex, I need these 10 things. I say, hey, you know, I don't tell this to the customer, but I'm looking at my warehouse. I've got seven of these products. But man, I really want to close this deal. And if I can quote the client on all 10 and give the client pricing on all 10 right now and give them a delivery time right now, my chance of closing this customer is obviously going to go through the roof. So that's this idea of a buyout marketplace tool. So these marketplace startups have a wide product catalog. They have inventory from a myriad of different manufacturers and suppliers. They have competitive pricing. So how can you give a marketplace enterprise sales tool to me, Alex, the salesperson, so that when I'm looking at the inventory inside of the distributor or the manufacturer's warehouse, and you say, hey, I we have seven of these products, but now I'm looking at my marketplace sales tool, and now I know where the other three are. I know how much they are, and I know when they can be delivered to the customer. Now I can respond to that quote 
right away. And hopefully we'll have a much higher conversion rate, win rate to close these deals. You see this concept in a lot of different areas of B2B distribution, whether you call it buyouts because you're buying it out from other competitors, other distributors, whether you think of it as complementary selling. There's a lot of manufacturers that have their own sales teams in B2B. And so if you have hundreds of salespeople, you're a manufacturer, very often your customer wants a solution. You know, they want your products and the salesperson wants to give the customer the total solution, which might mean having to sell complementary products. This marketplace sales tool is a great example of how that technology and that marketplace can help your salespeople sell more stuff. And what is that going to do? That's going to help your distribution business or your B2B manufacturing business increase your top line revenue over the immediate short term by enabling your salespeople with technology, by enabling your salespeople with an enterprise marketplace solution. It's going to help them sell more stuff. Now, that is also going to help justify an investment into one of these marketplace startups. And you're, you're also going to get a discount at the valuation that you get to invest because not only are you helping your salespeople sell more stuff, but if you're sourcing those three products on the marketplace, then you're bringing that marketplace startup more demand. And that's very valuable to these marketplace startups. They need demand and supply in order to scale and be successful. In many verticals of B2B distribution, you see a handful of really promising marketplace startups. And the dynamic with platforms is there's only one or two winners. Basically means if you're third, you're last. So if I'm a marketplace startup, I want to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm number one or at the very least number two. And so getting additional demand that could be channeled by all of these salespeople is a great way to do that. Not to mention B2B distributors or large manufacturers have a lot of other assets that would help that marketplace startup solve for supply. So you can obviously use the marketplace as a sales channel to distribute your goods through their marketplace, but you can also help bring them fulfillment and logistics capabilities, other value-added services like credit uh, services. You can bring them data on what is selling and what price to, to sell those products at. There's a lot of synergies as you kind of dig deeper in these large incumbents, whether they're distributors or manufacturers with big sales teams, not only to solve for demand, but to solve for supply for that marketplace, which means you can make an investment in one of these marketplace startups. You can get a sales tool that helps your salespeople sell more stuff in the immediate term, and you can get a discounted valuation and make good money on the investment and help that marketplace startup be successful, which long-term, by the way, is a good thing because you're just going to make Amazon's life harder. And if you can make Amazon's life harder, doesn't matter how you slice it, that's a good scenario if you are a distributor or a manufacturer in any of these B2B verticals. That's one example is this buyout marketplace. The other example is e-commerce. Clearly, we're seeing because of this pandemic that e-commerce, whoever has e-commerce, we've seen it with the large distributors that have invested in e-commerce, that they're clearly benefiting if they have made that e-commerce investment going into this pandemic. These customer buying behaviors aren't going to change. This is only going to be an accelerant to embrace e-commerce technology. Technologies. And so the question is, if you are a small to mid-sized distributor, how do you get e-commerce capabilities so that you can stay competitive with the larger distributors in your industry? And the answer is this. 
If you are a large distributor or if you are a large manufacturer, if you invest or buy one of these marketplace startups, they have this multi-tenant infrastructure. They have the capability to provide an e-commerce white label store to the small mid-sized distributor. Now you're helping that distributor be more competitive, but what are you getting from that distributor? You're able to now see that entire product catalog and their pricing. And so look at what Shopify recently did. Shopify recently launched uh, their Shopify shop app. And the shop app is basically their centralized marketplace app. And here to better compete against Amazon, I couldn't have said it any better. Shopify gives all these e-commerce tools to sellers, right? And now they've launched their own centralized marketplace app where they can sell all the stuff that their customers who are using e-commerce tools, they can sell all of that in a centralized app and they can drive demand to this centralized app and they can charge marketplace type fees where you're taking a percent of the overall transaction as opposed to charging a SaaS fee for the e-commerce tool, which is Shopify's traditional business model. So I think what you're going to start to see is you're going to start to see large distributors or large manufacturers that ultimately want to go after the marketplace opportunity, make an investment in one of these marketplace startups and say, hey, not only can I help bring you more demand, but I can help bring you small to mid-sized distributors that you can give them e-commerce tools that you can now get that demand. And now we can take that inventory from them because we're giving them these tools for free or heavily subsidized. And we can now fuel the supply in our centralized product marketplace. These are pretty um, standard platform strategies. It's called kind of commoditize the complement or, you know, you commoditize the technology. What platforms tend to do is they give the technology away for free in exchange for access to the network and the and the ecosystem. So you give technology away for free in exchange for the network. And so this is a classic example. Investor buy a marketplace startup, provide these e-commerce tools to the distributors or say or say retail stores, right? Auto parts has a lot of like retail stores, industrial electrical su- suppliers have a lot of kind of these retail franchise stores. How do you enable e-commerce for free or heavily subsidized and then use that to get access to the network? You're essentially turning all of these distributors into third-party sellers. You're getting access to their inventory and then you're helping bring them more demand. But you need to get their supply and their inventory and their pricing first. That's what this tactic and this strategy lets you do. Net-net, all of these things are good wholesale for the industry because... It will allow other competitors to be successful that don't have Amazon in their name. And whatever scenario you model out, that's a good scenario for pretty much everyone involved in the industry. Last thing is uh, some Q&A. We have, have had a few questions from subscribers and viewers over the past few weeks. I apologize for not being able to get to them. Uh, but here are a couple of them that, that I will go over, uh, which is, If Waymo is going to succeed or have a high chance of success, why would Google allow others a share of the pie? Wouldn't they keep it to themselves and not raise money from external parties, given that Google has a lot of money? They did that with YouTube. And and, okay, so why would Google open up Waymo if it's going to be a huge success? And I think the reason why is because 
they're only giving such a small piece of Waymo away, maybe less than 3% of the company. It's valued at maybe $100 billion. They sold off maybe a couple billion dollars in equity. So this is a very small share. Google still has an overwhelming majority and certainly has control of the business. What this is doing, though, is helping bring some financial rigor to Waymo, which kind of has had infinite money from Google. And now it's kind of putting pressure on the management team of Waymo to say, we need to commercialize, we need to productize this, we need to get to market, we need to build a business around Waymo. So obviously the technology is valuable, but they need to get to market. They need to launch. They need to make money. So this is a great way to say, yeah, let's raise you know a couple billion dollars for Waymo. We're not really ceding any power or control but we are hopefully going to light a fire, bring in some good institutional investors that are going to help the the Waymo team get to market and monetize and build a real business model around this company. Great question. Another question here from Nikhil is investors and VCs who invest in companies for a percent, how do they earn money if the company doesn't get bought or doesn't get a higher valuation? And the answer is that, well, they probably don't make money. If you are investing in a company and there's no exit event, then there's really no way to harvest that investment or or re- or, or get an ROI on it. There are some alternatives that you will see, like there's a marketplace called like Second Market, which will allow, you know, a lot of employees will use this that have shares that have vested for a while. Like for example, if you are an employee in Airbnb, you know, a lot of people were hoping that Airbnb would have gone public in 2019 because the employees have these options and they want to be able to sell the options. Sometimes their options are expiring. So they have to sell them, right? Or Airbnb has to go public. You have to provide this liquidity. So there are other sites out there that will let you sell your investment in a company to other investors and you're going to take a discount because there isn't a an exit event or that you know it's not public there isn't a liquid market that you can sell your shares in otherwise. Now if the company is worth less money you might still be able to use a second market. It depends how big the company is. You know, if it's a unicorn business and it was worth $5 billion and now it's worth $3 billion, you know, there probably still is a market that you could try to sell your shares in one of these secondary marketplaces for a discount. Uh, but if it's already a small business that's like Series C or Series B stage company, it's going to be much harder to sell those shares for anything uh, unless the business can really reach some very material scale and create a market or have investors that are interested in, in getting into an illiquid investment. Um, otherwise, that's really the only way to monetize it. You could say, are there distributions? But for tech startups, the concept of distributions is not, it's not really going to happen. It's not a lifestyle business. This isn't uh, a mature business that's throwing off cash, right? These companies need to hold on to their cash. So they're not really not going to be making distributions. It's really just secondary market sale or, you know, or, or it does get acquired or it does go public and you get that liquidity. So if you have questions, leave them. I'll answer them. And thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us.